name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This week, a friend suggested that I should be extra clear as to why you and I should become a disciple of Jesus and how do we do that. And I've taken that to heart. So this morning, I've written in my notes, I want to back up a little bit and just talk about why we should be a disciple and then how we become one. But I've struggled with that because I've got a lot of notes and we're a little bit early and I don't want to over, over speak and I don't want to talk too much. Um, but, uh, but this morning in Sunday school, in our prayer time, the subject came up both times. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proceed with what I've got in my notes. And hopefully I'll, I'll stay at interesting enough for you guys to stay attentive. And, and, you know, I won't speak too long. So let me talk about why we should be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Romans, it makes the claim that all of us are sinners. There's a verse, Romans 3.23, probably most of us know it well. It says, for all of us, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that falling short of the glory of God has to do with missing the mark. It's in the word it means it had to do with shooting an arrow and not hitting the target. And so basically God says all of us fall short of our, in our faithfulness to God, in our following after God. And uh, unfortunately, the consequences of that, God also tells us what they are in the book of Romans. And he says the consequences of falling short uh, is death. He says the wages of sin uh, is death, Romans 6, 23. Now, in the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, it kind of, I think it gives us another consequence of sin. All right, here's the second one, or here's another one. It says, but your, this is Isaiah, Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. So our sin brings death, all right? But our sin also, in some way, talks about here breaks at some level breaks our relationship with God I, I think quite often that's been called uh, spiritual death but but we basically have a broken relationship with God because because of our sin now historically if you're tracking with me historically Christians have also understood that death that we die and there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and at his return he's going to raise people back to physical life and uh, he's going to make people immortal and uh, historically the church has said this that in their immortality then God is going to punish them for their sin with uh, some sort of eternal conscious torment we talked about that last week but here's the reason why you should follow Jesus the good news is that God so loved this world that he created that he, he wanted to make a way for us, his crowning creation, to not have to experience the ramifications or the wages of our sin. And so the way that he did that, the way he rescued us from death, and the way that he rescued us from this broken relationship with him, um, is he did it by becoming one of us. The Bible says, you know, and again, if this, is, if this were all new to you, you'd think, boy, this is really strange. And, but it's probably not new to most of us, right? But the way we, we, we believe God did that is that God became one of us. And he did that so he could reveal himself to us as well. The Bible says that Jesus was the revelation, the perfect revelation of God, so that we would know what God is like. So he became one of us. And, and what he did in becoming one of us is he did not sin like us. He lived a perfect life, and uh, and he 
offered himself in death for us as this perfect life, as a substitute for us. He dies for us, the Bible says. Instead of us dying, Jesus dies. So that God can be both the justifi- be just and the justifier when he forgives us of our sin and when he gives us eternal life uh, with him. So the question then becomes, how does this work of Jesus get applied to our lives? How does what Jesus did get applied? Is it automatically applied to everybody? I mean, does everybody get the benefits of what, of what Jesus did? Some people believe that that is the case, but uh, I don't think the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that what Jesus did is a gift that God gives to us by grace. The forgiveness of our sin, both our rebellion against God, our missing the mark, is a gift from God. And he gives it to us, he says, on the basis of faith. And faith, he says, is receiving Jesus. And and a lot of folks, a lot of times we have kind of boiled it down to this little acronym to help us remember that we call it the ABCs of receiving Jesus. And the A being that I have to admit that I have a need. I have to to admit that my sin has separated me from God, that I have a problem, that that death is coming, right? So, uh, and that there's a response to it from God. So I have to admit my need. But then I have to believe that Jesus is the response to that need, that Jesus is God's plan for us to be forgiven, for us to experience eternal life, that Jesus is the plan. And then the C part then is that we have to confess Jesus as Lord. And uh, so Paul kind of kind of specifically lays this out for us in Romans 10. He says this. He says, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and, and, uh, and confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord, then we shall be saved. And we think that means saved from, saved from this death, saved from this separation from God, saved from the consequences uh, of our sin. Those are the ABCs. But, but I need to tell you that there's a little bit of disagreement among people who follow Jesus as to what the C means, the confessing part, right? What, is, what does that mean? And there's really, so Christians have sort of divided along two, two kind of ideas about what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. And uh, so I want to talk about one, one side of this understanding would say that that confession is, it's a confession with my mouth. I believe it. I, I, I say it with my mouth. It, coming from my heart, I believe that Jesus died, uh, died for me and that he's God's way. And I believe that in my heart. And so the confession is, I say it with, uh, with my heart. And uh, I can't say that I, 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 I don't disagree with that, right? I, but there's, a, there's another side uh, of this too. Before we move to the second side, though, probably it's out of this understanding that the sinner's prayer came. You know what the sinner's prayer is? You know that we pray a prayer saying, God, I, I confess my sin. I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. And we say what we call the sinner's prayer. And I confess, Lord, that I, uh, I believe in, in Jesus. Now, the other understanding of this, the other understanding of this is that confession is more than just the proclamation of this with my words. It's more even than just the proclamation that I, I believe something in my heart. This second understanding of confession carries with it the idea of 
I follow after Jesus. I have become his disciple. I am, I am willing to submit to him. It's more than just a verbal expression of what's in my heart. Now, I've said this here recently quite a bit, and I want to say it again. I think there's great value in the sinner's prayer. I think we should use the sinner's prayer. I think it puts a mark down for people. It helps them. It helps them, if you would, if you, as a beginning point, a beginning to follow Jesus. So I'm all for that. But I, I find myself falling more into that second understanding where, where the scripture says, uh, where Paul says, if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord, I think he's not saying so much what I say with my words, but there is a commitment of my life to follow after Jesus. And that's what he means by confession in, in, my, in my understanding. And let me see if I can't defend that a little bit. I'm going to defend that position since it's what I hold to. Um, but, but I want to defend that position in a couple of ways. One is I'm going, to, I'm going to look to what John says, John the Apostle says. So you remember John says, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now it seems to me obvious, but maybe it's not obvious, but it seems to me obvious that receiving Jesus it is more than just confessing something about Jesus or even what I believe about Jesus. Receiving, in my estimation anyway, carries more of an idea of, uh, of following, of, of receiving him into my life as Lord. All right? And if I, was to, if I were to go back to the very teachings of Jesus, here's what I would find, I think, in the teachings of Jesus. Although, uh, as I was practicing this morning or going over my message this morning, I, the Lord reminded me of a place where Jesus did ask about what do you believe about me, right? He asked his disciples, who do you believe that I am, right? So there is something there about believing certain things about Jesus. And I'm not trying to say that being a disciple doesn't have something to do with what we believe about Jesus. It has everything to do with that. But if we, if we go back and look at the very life of Jesus, I don't believe we find him asking, him just, asking us just to believe something about Jesus. He asked us to follow him. He asked men and women everywhere to follow him. He says, guys, unless you're willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He would say to people, hey, you got to be willing to give up your life. Take up your cross. Give up your very life to follow me. And, and then he says, we talked about this last week, he said, you know, being a part of my kingdom, you realize that it's more valuable than anything else. And you're willing to give up everything else to have that, to have that part of the kingdom. Now, let me say, if you're at home taking notes or if you're here and you're, you're tracking with me, I want to I make something really, really clear. Regardless of how you understand confession, we all agree that, confession, that, that being a disciple of Jesus is what God wants of us, right? It's just in, in one understanding, we divide salvation from discipleship. In the, other, in the other situation or the other understanding, we're saying, no, salvation is being a disciple. It is actually entering into that discipleship. Y'all follow me? Okay, so, so both sides of this understanding would, would agree that what Jesus wants of us is to be a disciple. Some of us would simply say that being a disciple is something subsequent to, to being saved. 
And others would say, no, being a disciple is what it means uh, to be saved. And so what I've tried to do in this series, regardless of how you come down on that, is I've tried to say, what does it mean to be a disciple? Of course, for, in my estimation, being a disciple is what it means to, to love and follow Jesus. I mean, it's what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be a follower. What it means to be saved, to use that terminology, to be saved from death, to be saved from the separation from God. It is to be a disciple. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to help us understand what does it mean to confess Jesus? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And uh, so I've been assuming all along, uh, you know, my friend came to see me this week and, and said I didn't talk enough about the A and the B and the C, admitting, believing, and confessing. But I, I must confess that, or I must, I must agree that I've been mostly assuming that you admit your need, and I have been assuming that you believe that Jesus meets that need. And I've been trying to tell us this is what it means to confess. If you happen to be here this morning, or if you're watching us on the live stream, here's what I'd say to you. If you have not admitted your need, if you've not recognized your need, and I don't see why you can't recognize your need because death comes, I mean, every one of us, we just, we see our loved ones experience death. So if, if you don't see your need, then, then I don't know what I can do for you. But if you see your need and you believe that Jesus is God and that he died for you, then, then it's time for you to confess him. It's time for you to own that. It's time for you to be serious about that, to step into following after Jesus. And so that's what I've been trying to do is challenge us to follow Jesus and what that looks like. And, uh, and so what I suggested a few weeks ago as we began this series, and, and again, maybe you know all this, so forgive me if I'm just repeating myself, but I said that in this fellowship of Jesus, a lot of times we had just associated with a bunch of things we're supposed to do. And I'm saying, no, there's really this framework of following Jesus, and I've, and I've suggested that there's, there's going to be six parts to this framework. And last week I shared with you the motivation. I, I, there's a... Part of this framework of following Jesus, I think, is motivation. What motivates us to follow Jesus? And I told you, I told you, it's, I don't think that fear or that God's going to do good things for me in this life, those are proper motives. I think, they're, I think they're inappropriate. I think they're substandard motives. I think they won't even carry you to the end. Instead, I said, what the motive should be that is that God, in his great love for you, the person that he is, has invited you into a relationship with him that lasts forever. And that should be your motivation for following Jesus. His great love in the person of Jesus. And then what he promises us in that relationship, which is the hope of glory. We talked about that last, uh, and we talked about that last week. So this week, what I'd like to talk about in this framework is, is what I'm going to call the category of obedience to Jesus. So the first category was motivation, and this one is obedience. I want to talk about being a disciple and what it means, what obedience to Jesus means in being a disciple. So let's go back to the Colossians passage in chapter one, verse twenty-seven and twenty-eight. This is the this is sort of the passage that I'm I'm using to find the framework. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. That, that was the motivation. Then warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And there's that word warning. Paul says we're warning everybody. So what is he warning them of? He doesn't explicitly say but I, I want to interpret that, and I want to say implicitly, I think, that he is warning them to obey the Lord, 
to obey the teachings of the Lord, to obey what God has called us to do, warning them that obedience is integral to following Jesus. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is, I'm, this is a topical talk. I'm going to go to the scriptures, and I'm going to show you what I believe to be, I think it's six aspects of obedience uh, in, as far as following Jesus. But the first one I want to talk about is that the core of following Jesus is obeying him. And I want, to, I want to share that. I want to share why I say these things from the scripture. Here's the first one. Our obedience is core to following Jesus. In the Great Commission, which is the last commandment really that Jesus gave his followers, or near the last commandment that he gave them in Matthew 28, he, he meets them on a hill and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So I'm going to suggest to you that in the mandate to make disciples, which by the way, I think is what it means to be saved. And again, that, that's my conclusion there. But regardless, even if, if, if you think it's separate, that's what God wants us to do is make disciples, be a disciple. He says, teaching people to obey my instructions, to obey my will. In the Sermon on the Mount, we uh, have Jesus giving us, if you would, a, I heard someone call it the handbook for following Jesus. I couldn't agree more. But in this, in this handbook for following Jesus, here's, here's what Jesus taught. He says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good out of the good stored in his heart, up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And here's what Jesus is saying. You don't get good and evil from the same from the same heart. In the same way you don't get thorns and good fruit from uh, or bramble bushes and fruit from the same tree. You get one or the other. In the same way you only get good and evil from from people's hearts depending on on what they are. So then he concludes that by asking this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord and don't do the things I say? And so I think what Jesus is saying to us, listen, what he's saying to us if you're good fruit, if you're walking in faith, you will produce a good fruit. And that good fruit is being obedient to me. Why do you say you follow me? Why do you say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, boss, boss? Why do you call me the guy in charge, but you don't do what I say? Good fruit, Jesus is saying in his rhetorical question is that you walk in obedience to me. Obedience, everyone, isn't optional for the disciple of Jesus. It's not an elective. It's not an elective in the course curriculum of life. It's, it's part of the main syllabus and part of the main requirements of life that we walk as a disciple, that we walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see the same priority of obedience for those who walked in faith. Here's what Samuel says. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, here's what he's saying to the Old Testament folks, which applies to us in the New Testament, okay? He's saying, guys... What's important to God, God is that you walk in faithfulness to his will, not that you do these ceremonial things, these religious ceremonial things like taking sacrifice animals. You know what delights God's heart? Your obedience 
Now you're doing these little things. Now we don't do sacrifices anymore. We don't have Old Testament stuff like that anymore. But we still have our little spiritual rituals as Christians. And that doesn't, I don't mean that in any kind of bad way. We come to the gathering, you know, we, we have a daily devotion or things like that. Jesus is saying, God is saying, I think that in our discipleship, obedience is better than just doing things that we think, you know, please the Lord. These, these religious things. Obedience is, is better. I, I'm calling obedience this category uh, of, and this framework of discipleship. And it's not a very popular subject in the church. Barna and, uh, and Gallup did a bunch of polls. And, and Michael Horton, a theologian, this is what he says about those polls. He says, Barna and Gallup have handed us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians, that's us guys, Evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. And as much as we might like to excuse ourselves by saying everybody's doing it, or all religions are doing it, or whatever, right? That's the point of my message. That's the point of this message, everyone, that being a disciple, we, we claim to follow this king who rose from the dead. We claim to follow this king who gave us his spirit so that we don't have to live like that. So we don't choose to live like that, but we ra rather live by his spirit, overcoming the world, walking in obedience to Jesus. Here's my second, here's my second observation point about obedience. O obedience is a struggle. <laughs> Yes, obedience is core to following Jesus as a disciple, but it's not easy. It's hard. In Romans chapter 7, we have a passage where Paul says, and you know the passage well if you follow Jesus any amount of time at all. You know the passage well. But Jesus, Paul says this. He says, the things that I don't want to do, man, I do those things. And the things I want to do, I end up not doing those things. And there's all kinds of argument among Christians. Well, is this before Paul came to know Jesus? Or is this after Paul came to know Jesus? Here's what I want to say anecdotally in my own life. That I've been, a following, I've been following Jesus for many, many decades now. And I'm telling you, following Jesus has not been easy. I mean, living a life of obedience for myself has not been easy. I'm, I'm still, after all these years, you know, there's at some level my heart struggles to obey and wants to do stuff that I want to do rather than the things that God wants to do, wants me to do. And so I think when, I think we see Jesus acknowledging this struggle, say when his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember he says, remember what he says to them when he tells them to stay awake, pray? He comes to them and they're asleep. He says the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus is acknowledging that there, there is a, there's a difficulty there in us following in obedience, and he recognizes that. The author of the, the book of Hebrews says this, Let us lay aside every, and every hindrance, now listen, and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You know, Anne doesn't even know this because I expect her to come out once she saw me. It was embarrassing. But I was, I've been splitting wood. I've been cleaning up my yard. And I was splitting wood last week. And so I, I had split a bunch of logs. Makes you feel good, you know, when that wall comes down, that thing pops open in the middle. I got pieces lying all around me. And guess what? My feet got entangled in my wood, right? And I mean, my, my feet were just, I couldn't, I couldn't catch my balance because my feet were tangled up. And, and down I went, all 200 plus pounds of me went down on the ground, right? And uh, I tell you what, sin's like that. 
It's like all around our feet. And it's really easy. This is what the author of Hebrews says. It's really easy to get tangled up in that sin. And uh, it so easily entangles us, he says, makes us fall. You know, maybe there'll be an age and a day in my life where I won't struggle anymore with sin, but, but I haven't reached it yet. And uh, I, I do believe the promise of the new kingdom, we talked about this either last week or the week before, but the promise of this, I think it was last week, the promise of the new kingdom, I think, is that I, I won't be tripping up. I won't have sin so easily entangling me. I think that's the promise of the new kingdom. But for now, I'm not living there. So, hey, my point is obedience is a struggle. Here's another one. Our obedience and faith are inextricably linked. And this is, this is why I fall in that second understanding. I don't think you can separate in some sort of meaningful way faith and obedience. And, and um, let me see if I can prove that. Uh, John and Charles Wesley. Remember we talked about them a few weeks ago in the, in the hymns, hymns series, right? And you remember, remember about Charles and, and, and John, how they just tried to do ministry, 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 because they wanted to make sure they had done enough so that God would accept them. Well, guys, it's not that they were oblivious to the fact that Jesus died for them. It wasn't that they were oblivious to, you know, what Paul says in Romans about faith and trusting him. I mean, it, they weren't oblivious to that, but they were putting the emphasis, if you would, on, on the things that they had to do to make sure they had made up enough, you know, to supplement, I guess, what Jesus had done for them. Same thing's true with Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther, man, he, he, they talk, Martin would talk about how he just sat there and for hours tried to confess every little sin he had to make sure that he covered everything there was to cover, right? Make sure that he didn't forget something so that, so that God would not, uh, you know, so that God would forgive him uh, in the end. And then these men, all three of them at some point discovered the joy of the fact that we are saved by faith, that God by his grace gives us righteousness through our trusting in him rather than our efforts. But having said that, it's really easy, everyone. It's really easy for us to swing the pendulum in our lives. And this, this, is, this is a warning. It's not just about this. It's about everything in our life. We, we, tend to, we tend, if we're not careful, to just swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. So we need to be careful. But that's kind of what they did. So Martin Luther, in particular, when he read the book of James... He cut the book of James out of, his, out of his Bible. And the reason he cut the book of James out of his Bible is because he had come to believe that we were saved by faith. What Paul says in Romans, apart from works, apart from our effort, we're saved because we trust in the Lord. And so when he read the book of James, he cut it out of his Bible because this doesn't fit. This isn't, this isn't salvation by faith. This is salvation by, by our works. Well, let's read. Uh, and and forgive, forgive me to those of you that are in Dave's class since we read this same identical text in Sunday school, but, but let me read it again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? This is James speaking, James 2. If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I, I have works. 
Show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith. And then there's a section about Rahab and then a concluding verse. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now that's a lengthy passage. And I read it as, well, I didn't read it in its entirety. I skipped the Rahab verse. But, but, but I think Luther made the mistake of divorcing faith from obedience. Whereas before people were saying it's faith plus obedience, Luther came along and said, well, well faith, I mean, obedience isn't part of it at all, right? And, and so Luther would probably have agreed with the first understanding that confessing Jesus as Lord means that I say it with my mouth, I believe it in my heart, but it has absolutely nothing to do with obedience and following after Jesus. I think James is saying, nope, you cannot you cannot divorce faith from obedience. You cannot divorce faith from, uh, from our works. Now, we're not, so, so I gotta say this, so hopefully I'm not gonna be just muddying the waters all up. We're not saved because we obey everyone. I mean, Paul makes this so, so very clear in, uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, here, here's what he says in Romans chapter four. He says, we will also be accepted because of our faith in God, who raised our Lord Jesus to life. God gave Jesus to die for our sins, and he raised him to life so that we would be made acceptable. I should have included another verse, because there's verse after verse after verse where Paul makes the statement that I am not saved by my obedience. I'm not declared forgiven. I, I, my, my sin is not erased by God, uh, by Jesus, by my works, right? It's by faith and by faith alone. But the point point here I'm trying to make is the point I think that James makes and even Paul would make is that faith faith has a component of obedience to it it has a it has a component of surrender it has a component of following after Jesus and if that is not there then then James says that's a dead faith that's not a saving faith that's not really what faith is. They're indissolubly linked together. Here's John, the one who heard, uh, who heard uh, Jesus say the things that, that he said. Here's what John said. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Obedience always follows true faith. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, obedience is going to be extremely important to you. Now, this isn't in my notes. I'm going to go off my notes. But this came from Sunday school and something that, that Nancy said. And I, I really want to make this really clear. So if obedience is as part of faith, how much obedience do I have to have? So that's what we tend to ask, right? We tend, we'll, say, we'll say, Jimmy, if you're saying faith and obedience go together, how much obedience do I have to have? You're missing my point. We all fall short. 
We all fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us even continue to fall short. I think, I think John would say if we confess our sins, no, he, he would say if we claim we have no sin, we're, we're lying. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. The issue isn't that I have to meet up to a certain amount of obedience, which is, I think, why Martin Luther actually cut James out because he misunderstood as well. He's thinking James is saying, oh, you have faith plus a certain amount of works, which it seems to be what John and Charles Wesley understood, right? It's faith plus a certain amount of works. If I just do enough ministry, God will accept me. No, I'm saved because I trusted God. But trusting God is always going to lead us to obedience. And you say, well, Jimmy, what about the guy, person who's not obeying completely or whatever? Hey, it's none of your business. It really isn't. You're not the judge of all the world. God is. But I'm telling you. I'm telling you, there is something in, in, in when, when we have true faith in Jesus and we confess him as Lord, there is this submission of our life that hopefully is leading to more and more and greater and greater obedience in our life. But there is this, there is this, at the core of following Jesus is obeying his, his will. Number four, obedience is our love for Jesus. I don't dispute emotional love. I love emotional love. I, I, I definitely feel like I'm a romantic. I love loving feelings in relationships. But the Bible says over and over and over again that love is not, it's not those feelings that that love is a certain way of acting. It's a certain way of doing things. And it's not a feeling. I think the same thing is true of faith. Faith is not a feeling. Faith, faith is, a, is a decision that I make to follow after Jesus. And so there's so many places in the Bible where God identifies obedience with love, okay? So here's Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And here, here he's, he's, Jesus is equating love and obedience. John the Apostle, who listened to Jesus say the very words I just read, he would later write to a church, and this is what he would say to them, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. In his second letter, he wrote this, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You know, I suggested last week that our motivation for following Jesus should be Jesus. And it should be his great love. And his love works in us. Paul says, I think, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ is the motivator that causes us to love him in return. Our obedience, let me say it clearly. I don't want you to misunderstand me. God doesn't love you more because you obey him. I mean, God's not increasing your, hey, you did really good this week. God said, I love you more this week. It doesn't work like that. He's not obeying you more. I mean, he's not obeying you. He's not loving you more because you obey him. In fact, our obedience is response to his initiation of love. He loves me. That's why I love him. That's why I obey him. Because both Jesus and John tell us clearly that obedience and love, they, they are, they're, they're like this. And my love for God is evidenced in my obedience. And if I don't, if I don't obey, then I'm not loving God. Every time you disobey, every time you choose to disobey, tell yourself this, I'm loving something or someone, myself, more than I'm loving God. 
And really, the, the whole goal for me as a disciple is I want to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And so in 1 John 4, 19, don't forget this verse, you all know it well. We love him because, see, you all know it. We love him because he, it's, it's God's love is the initiator. We're responding to God's love. He's loved us with an everlasting love. And because he's loved us, we, we respond to him in love. Being his disciple is about, in its core, it's about obeying. And obeying him is about our love. I know this is a little bit long. Y'all just be patient. Our, number five, our obedience is a place of flourishing. This is so important. I want you to follow me here. Have you ever thought, why does God ask us to obey? Why does God want me to obey him? I mean, is it just because he's got on a power trip and he just wants us to obey him? Um, I think a lot of people have this understanding of God. That God's up in, up in his heaven with a bat looking over the balcony of heaven. And he's just waiting for you to mess up. He's just waiting for you to sin against him. To choose your will over his. So that he can reach down with his bat and just nail you. This is a true story. I, I know a dad who made a rule for his son. That his son could not go in his bedroom. And when his boy, I don't know how old he was, eight years old, something like that. I don't know exactly. His son's walking down the hall by his parents' bedroom. And his dad pushes him in his bedroom and then disciplines him for it. And his son said, Dad, that's not fair. And his dad said, well, son, I want you to understand life's not fair. And, and so, you know, I'm going to give something to the dad and say he's trying to teach his son something. But you know what? I think a lot of people think God is like that. That, you know, might not have, not have a fault of my own. God's just waiting to, to punish me for anything and everything. I, I take, that, is not, that is not an accurate I feel for that boy because that, that dad didn't give an accurate picture of what God is like. And if you've got the picture that God's just waiting to beat you up because you failed, I'm telling you, you've got the wrong picture of God. Why, why, why does God want us to obey? Now listen, I'm, here, here, this may be the most significant thing I'm going to say this morning. Why does God want you to obey? Here's what I think, and I think the Bible backs me up on this. That God has created a place of flourishing for us. A place of joy. A place of goodness. A place of abundance. And you know where that place is? That place is found in the center of his will. That place is found in the center of obedience to God. I'd like you, I took this from a friend, but I'd like you to draw a circle and imagine it to be the will of God. As close as you are in, that, in the center of that, that circle, the more flourishing there's going to be, the more abundance there's going to be. And it's not so much that God is, is up in his heaven with a bat waiting to get you, but it's the further you get outside of that circle of God's will, the more barren of a place it is, the more austere of a place it is, the, the sadder of a place it is, the further you get away from that. God's abundance is found in obedience. And, God, and, and, and when God says, Here, here's my will, obey my will, what he's trying to tell you is this is the place where you will flourish. This is the place where you'll find joy. This is the place where you'll find abundance of life. And it's not so much that if you get out of that 
that God's going to clobber you. And, and don't misunderstand. We, we tend to want to take each other's words and run to the nth degree. And I'm not saying that God doesn't discipline. I'm not saying that God doesn't at times deal with us specifically in a way that we might consider negative and discipline. But I'm trying to tell you that most of the stuff that we experience that is, that is negative is because we're walking outside of the will of God. It's because we're making choices that are contrary to God. So let me see if I can't defend this biblically. In the Old Testament, Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now I want you to interpret Joshua 1.8 in this way. I want you to hear God saying, Josh, here's the place of flourishing. Walk in this way. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to be successful. You know how we read that? We, we tend to read that. Maybe you don't. But so many people tend to read that. Boy, if I don't do it, God's going to clobber me. And I think God's saying, no, this is the place where you find, this is the place you find blessing. Here's another one from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5.33. You shall walk in the way of the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you and you shall possess. How about when they're going into the promised land, they get there, was it near Ebal, I think it was? You preached on it. I think it was near Ebal. And they set the, set the people up on the two mountains that faced each other, and they yelled out blessings and curses. Hey, if you want blessing, this. If you want curses, do this. In other words, it's not so much God's going to clobber you, it's just it's the ramifications and the effects of you walking in disobedience to him. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Yeah. This is how we find, this is how we have abundant life. We walk in obedience to, uh, to the Lord. One final thought on this. Here's, here's a parable Jesus taught in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, or which, what, what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Everyone who hears my words and does them, everyone who obeys me. It's like a man who built his house on a rock and the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. Its collapse was great, with, it collapsed with a great uh, crash. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Notice that the storm didn't come because of disobedience. You see that? It's not like they get a storm because they disobeyed. It's like, man, there's just storms in life. But what Jesus says, when you walk with me, you're not going to be ravished by the storms. Why? Because I think that's the place of abundance. That's the place where, where, where I say you find joy and you find life and you find flourishing. On the other hand, if you don't obey my words, when the storm comes against you, your house is going to fall. You just can't help but fall because you're not building your life in this place where I'm, I'm calling you to build. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be the kind of husband you need to be so that your marriage will flourish. If, if you're going to follow, if you follow Jesus, guys, and you're going to be, and you be the dad that God wants you to be, then, man, there's going to be blessings out of that with your children. And with your whole household, your whole family. If you don't, I think you're going to reap the, the opposite. If you disregard God's will on lust and on greed and vulgarity and lying and gossip, you're going to reap. You're going to reap what comes with living outside the circle of God's, of God's flourishing will. 
And it's not that God's just trying to whack you. It's, that's what you're going to reap for what you sow. And by the way, the Bible's pretty clear about that, isn't it? You reap of sin. If you do, you're going to, you'll do what sin wants. Live under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you do, God will think about, uh, excuse me, if you do, you will think about what the Spirit wants. I mean, there's lots of verses I could have chosen. I chose that one. Simply to say, man, God says over and over again, I'm leaving you my spirit to help you in obedience. So that you're not, you're not alone. You're not fighting this alone, Tim. I mean, David, we're, we're not in this by ourselves. God is with us and he's helping us to fight against sin. So I've got an illustration for you. So yesterday I'm clearing up my yard and, uh, and Joe Olson comes. So, so this is what I got to get out of the ground. Looks pretty scary, doesn't it? I couldn't get it out of the ground. I didn't know how to get it out of the ground. So Joe Olson comes, and Joe, and Joe helps me get it out of the ground. He tells me how to get it out of the ground. Then he hooks up his truck to it, and we pull it out of the ground with his truck. All right? Here's my point. The Holy Spirit sort of like that. When I can't do it, and I don't even know how to do it, or I don't have the strength to do it, the Holy Spirit comes, and, and he, like Joe helped me yesterday, he helps us obey one of my favorite promises that I got as a, as a young Christian. And again, I, man, I don't want to paint the wrong picture, okay? Man, I, I'm, I'm, still a, I'm still failing at times in my Christian life. I'm still failing. I'm not thinking right thoughts. I'm not saying right things. I'm not doing wrong, right things all the time. But here's my favorite promise. No temptation has come upon you except which is common to all humanity. But God is faithful, and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way also that you may be able to bear it. Admit it to yourself. Own it. I mean, look at it and say, you know, I don't, as soon as I start talking about this, you know where you're walking in obedience or where you're, where you're stumbling in obedience and really not walking in, in obedience. You know where it is. I don't have to point. I don't have to tell you no. So here's what I'd like you to do. Get honest with yourself. I mean, in prayer, say, God, this is, this is where, you know, this is where I keep, this is where I keep failing. Get honest with yourself, but let me, let me move on. The second one, not just get honest with yourself. And by the way, before I go on, we don't all struggle in the same place. I have never struggled with alcoholism. Never struggled with abusing alcohol, right? Never struggled with abusing drugs. Now those things, those things have a bodily response and addiction, which makes it even really harder to get over those, right? But, but some of you maybe struggle, maybe you're struggling today with that, an addiction to a substance, alcohol, or something else. Your struggle's there, my struggle's somewhere else. We all struggle in different places. Here's what Paul says, don't be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greed, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some, such, and some of you used to be like that, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that there's a person that has all of those problems. What he means is that we all have different problems. We all have different areas where we struggle against sin. Okay, so get honest with yourself about about what, where your area is. Own it. But the second thing is get honest with the second person. Is get honest with God, right? I mean, tell God He already knows. I mean, just sometime today, tomorrow, this week, get honest with God and say, God, hey, I keep failing this area, and you know I'm failing this area, and and God, can you help me? 
can you help me? Because I'm so tired of failing. And can, can you imagine your kids coming to you, dads, those dads that are in this room or on the, on the live stream? Can you imagine your kid coming to you and saying, Dad, I've really been failing in this particular area. Something you didn't even know, okay? They said, Dad, would you help me? Because I'm so tired of failing. I don't want to fail anymore. I just can't do this, Dad. I need your help. Man, you, you would... You would move every mountain you could possibly move to help your child overcome that, whatever it is. So go to your Father in heaven. But the third person that I'd like to ask you to get honest with is just someone else. Confess your sins, the Bible says. Choose somebody that you trust and let them know. I mean, kind of just open up your heart a little bit and let them know where you're failing. Let them know where you're struggling so that somebody can fight with you and pray for you and, and, and can, can just, you know, we talk about accountability. I mean, I, you know, I don't know about that. All I know is that there's just something about opening your heart, putting the light on the darkness that might be there. And so here, I'd, I'd ask you to get honest with someone else. Not, not everyone else, just one person. One person that you can trust. Let them know. Here's a second action point I'd like to ask you to do, and that is replace the sin that so easily ensnares you and pursue the opposite. Here's a verse for you. Here's what Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, chapter 2. He says, flee from youthful lust. Free from those sins that so easily entangle you. And here's what he says, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here, here's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, Timothy, it's not just enough to, to try to root out the root ball. He says, pursue, pursue righteousness and faith and holy, pursue something. So here's what I'm saying to, to us. I'm trying, and again, I, I, don't, I don't have any, I really want to give you an example, but I don't have any. You know, to overcome disobedience, I have to own it, and then I have to turn from it and flee it. But then I also have to pursue, pursue after something in its place. And you figure out what it is that you need to pursue in its place and, and, and just start pursuing. I mean, the things that he told Timothy were pursue peace, faith, love, righteousness. I mean, those are, those are kind of esoteric. Those are sort of nebulous. They're not necessarily practical. Maybe you can find something practical you can pursue that would help you and help you obey where right now you're disobeying. And the third thing that I, the third action point would be, here it is, listen, shed blood in your fight to obey. And I get that from Hebrews 12. I read you part of the verse, and in, uh, but the third verse says, and that's one that says, you know, don't get entangled with sin so easily. But then he says, for consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, guys, you're not bleeding yet for following Jesus. So bleed, man. Be willing to follow Jesus and bleed if you need to. What I think the author is trying to say to us is, man, don't give up. Don't give up. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but over the course of my life, there have been so many times where the root ball just, just continues to sprout and sprout, and you just feel like giving up and saying, I'm just going to let it take over. I wish I had shown you some pictures of the area where that root ball came from before we started. I mean, it was overgrown. You know, if, when, you don't, when you stop dealing with that stuff growing in your life, it's just going to overtake. And so for some of you in this quest to be the disciple, that, that, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, I'm challenging you to get back into battle. I'm challenging you to get back into war. I'm challenging you to fight. 
to fight and resist and resist even to the point of shedding blood. You know, we've gone to Nags Head uh, for vacation our entire adult life. And, you know, you hear a lot about rip currents. And I remember swimming one time, and I wouldn't call this a rip current, but all of a sudden I realized, man, I'm, I'm being taken out. I'm being taken out. I mean, it's not bad, but I'm having to fight to get back in. And of course, you know, my, uh, my training kicks in, and I know, man, you don't swim against the rip. You, you, you swim down the beach, right? But I'm telling you what, I'm having, to fight against, I'm having to fight against panic starting to rise up because I'm realizing I can't swim back in and all. You know, if I'd have given up the rip current, I don't understand what a drown because I'm a good, I got a lot of fat, I can float. And uh, they'd have come and got me, I guess. But you know what? I just kept fighting against it, going to the side, and I was able to come out of it. If you will fight against it, you can win. I want to encourage you, you can win. Here's what Paul says. Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. And the flesh being, I think, a, a, a term representing living according to our own will. We're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that we're in a war. We're in a war. You fight to live. And you fight to live in the center of God's will where flourishing takes place. And if you give in, if you coast, you're going to coast outside of that circle and you're going to just reap all kinds of negative stuff. You've got to fight. And that's my action point for you this morning in obedience. Get honest with yourself about where it is that you're struggling with obedience. And then, and then, and then deal with it and replace it with something else. And then, and then thirdly, fight, fight hard against this. So here's my action point for you. If you're taking notes at home or if you're in this room and maybe not taking notes, but I want you to do this mentally, you know, my disobedience that needs to be tackled is what? I mean, uh, alcohol, bitterness, flirtation, unwholesome speech, pornography, anger, consistent lying, disobedience to parents. I mean, what is your disobedience, your consistent disobedience that needs to be addressed that you might grow in discipleship? Because that's the goal, right? That's the goal, to become, this, to become a growing well-equipped, passionate disciple of Jesus. What area of disobedience do you need to mark in there that you need to, that you need to tackle? And then, then the second application question that I'm asking you is, what will you do first to grow in this obedience? What, what, what is, what's your plan? What, how are you going to tackle this disobedience? Even if you're here and you do the first, do the first one, if you don't come up with a plan of action, you know, then, then nothing's going to happen. You're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, yeah, man, God spoke to me, man, in this area of disobedience. And I really want to conquer that. But if you, don't, if you don't develop some sort of plan of action, nothing's going to change. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to tell? What do you need to do to stop, to stop being disobedient and start being obedient because you're a follower of Jesus? What verses do you need to memorize? What, who, do you, who do you need to talk to? What do you need to stop going to? What do you need to stop watching? What do, you, what do you need to do and how are you going to do it? So I'd like to ask you either today, tomorrow, sometime, and, and this is really something for you and you and you and God, right? I, I don't know if this is something necessarily for you and someone else and God, but you and God, at least first, come up with your action plan and then say, God, help me obey. Thank you so much for listening this week. 
If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.